Well, good morning. As Jason mentioned, it's clearly been a difficult week for our country. From the shooting of Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge to the shooting of Philando Castile in St. Paul to the shooting of 11 police officers, including the killing of five, Brent Thompson, Patrick Zamaripa, Michael Kroll, Michael Smith, and Lorne Aarons right down the road in Dallas, Texas. And if you're like me, you have watched this play out with equal part horror and heartbreak as you've watched these things happen on your television screens and in social media. You know, we are a church that believes in the sanctity of life. We value each and every human life because we serve and worship a God who values each and every human life. And that goes from those in the womb to those entering the tomb. That goes from those with special needs to those who seemingly have no need at all. We believe that value applies to all humans, no matter of their, no matter their race, nationality, ethnicity, sex, age, income level, educational status, religion, or sexual orientation. We believe each and every human has infinite value because each and every human is made in the image of the one true infinite God. So our heart breaks. We're also a church that is multi-ethnic. Because we worship a God who has called all people of all nations, tongues, and tribes to himself for his glory for all eternity. And so as the body of Christ, we grieve with those who grieve and we mourn with those who mourn. So we grieve and mourn with those who feel marginalized in our culture, especially our African and American brothers and sisters who have endured much as a people and whom many who are feeling unfairly targeted, afraid, and voiceless in a society that they perceive to have left them behind. And so we agree with the words of the great Martin Luther King Jr. who said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And so we desire to, desire to see justice because the God that we worship is infinitely just in all that he does. We are also a church that is beyond thankful for those who uphold that justice, for the law enforcement who protect us and lay it on the line each and every day. My brother is a police officer with San Antonio Police Department. Our senior pastor, Roger Pupart, spent seven years with Dallas PD as he was going through seminary and he often patrolled the area where the shootings occurred this week. And he has gone to Dallas as a police chaplain to meet with many of the patrol officers involved in this horrific incident and to minister to some of the families who have lost their loved ones. So please keep him in your prayers. There's not a better guy to do that, I think you would agree, than Roger. Finally, we hurt for our nation and we hurt for our world because we know this is not how things ought to be. Our world is sadly broken, wrecked by sin and rebellion against God, and this wreckage is on display 
on an endless loop right in front of us and around us each and every day. And the cure to this disease, this disease of sin, cannot be found from within. There is no human remedy to our problem. The only cure to the brokenness of our world is by turning to the one who was broken for us on the cross, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so what I want to do this morning is I just want to take a minute, take some time to, a little bit different, but I want us to go before the Lord as a congregation in prayer. I want us to go before the Lord and ask for his hand of healing upon our country, upon our world, that he would give us the wisdom and discernment and courage to stand for the gospel and to live out the gospel in a day and age where that seems to get tougher and tougher. And so I'm going to give you a, a minute of silence, and I want to encourage each one of you to go before the Lord on your own and seek him in these things. And then I will pray over us as a congregation. We're going to go into the book of Acts this morning, but I think this is an important time for us as a congregation to come together and pray for these things. So I invite you to go before the Lord right now, and then I'll close this in a minute. Lord, we come before you with hearts that are hurting. Confusion reigns. Knee-jerk responses are the rage. Polarization defines our country and our discourse. And it grieves our heart because we know this is not how things were designed to be. And as much as it grieves us, God, we know that it grieves you infinitely more. Because you create us for something so much more. And so when we see these events play out through the course of this week, our heart breaks. God, we grieve for the number of kids who will never see their father again. We grieve for the, the wives who have lost their husbands. We grieve because life is precious. It's precious. And we grieve because each and every life is of infinite value. And so we ask your hand of healing upon each one of us, upon our city and our country and our world. And we thank you for your faithfulness that's on display every day throughout the world. And we thank you for the cross the hope of the future, our hope in Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So like I said, please be in prayer for Roger. Uh, he can use it. It's a tough time. It's a personal, very personal deal for us all, but especially for him. And so please be lifting him up during this time. Well, the last few months, if you've been with us, we've been on a journey. 
We've been on a journey with our brother, the Apostle Paul, traveling through the Roman Empire as God has been establishing the church. And last week we finished up the second missionary journey as God ministered to Paul as Paul was ministering in the city of Corinth. And so after three years on that journey, Paul and his team finally arrive home back at Antioch. They're sending church Antioch in Syria, and they give the church, what, they tell them what's going on, what, what the Lord's been doing in Asia and in Europe, and how God's been blessing their ministry. And then just like that, they're right back on the road. On the road once again. And yes, I'm going to quote Willie Nelson. Last week was R.E.M., this week is Willie Nelson. As he said, on the road again, I just can't wait to get on the road again. The life I love is making music, planning churches, equipping the saints, and doing intensive discipleship with my friends. And I can't wait to get on the road again. Maybe that was not Willie's version, that's Paul's version. This is who Paul is. Paul is a, plant, is a church planting missionary with a heart for the gospel. And so he goes. He goes. And they are off once again. And this is where we pick up this morning in the book of Acts chapter 18 and verse 23 as Paul and his team are embarking on the third missionary journey. And verse 23 says this. It says, And having spent some time there, being um, Antioch, He left and passed successfully through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So Paul begins the third missionary journey by going where he's already gone. He goes to Galatia, modern-day Turkey, to equip the saints there. And when you think of the three missionary journeys throughout the book of Acts, one thing that's helpful is the the first two are very evangelistic. The focus is an evangelism of the lost. And as we come to Paul's third journey, the emphasis is going to shift a little bit to an edification of the saved. Okay? So as the first two, the focus is on reaching out. Paul's third missionary journey is going to be one more of pouring in. Pouring in. He wants to build these churches up so that they can go out and do the work of ministry in their communities and throughout the rest of the world. One thing that's helpful to remember is that Paul cannot tell these guys, hey, just go read your Bible. Because the Bible doesn't exist. There is no New Testament at that point. It has not been written yet. Paul is in the process of writing about half of it. Inspired by the Holy Spirit. So number one, there is no New Testament. And number two, this is an oral culture. They are predominantly illiterate. They did not have access to the Scriptures. So Paul knows, I've got to go there. I've got to go to them and equip them to do the work of ministry. Like he writes Timothy in his last letter, 2 Timothy 2. He says, I'm going to entrust the truths of God to others. Entrust the truth of God to others. Teach the truths of God and entrust those to others who will do the same. This is merely the process of discipleship. This is discipleship. And, and, and this is the way it's always been. I love the words of the book of Ezra, chapter 7, verse 10, describing Ezra. And this is what it says. It says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. So we get really distracted in terms of what discipleship is, but it's really not that complicated. Learn the things of God. Who is God? 
live out the truths of God, apply those to our life, and then teach those to others so that they might do the same. It's pretty straightforward. That was the effective ministry of discipleship in the Old Testament with Ezra. That's the effective method for Paul. And it's what we seek to do here at Wayside as a community rooted in the Word, reaching out to the world and reproducing Christ's followers. And so as Paul set sail on his third missionary journey, this is a journey with a mission of discipleship. And we're going to see some of these, this, this mission play out in a few scenes this morning, starting in verse 24. It says, Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So from verse 23 to verse 24, we have a scene change. Verse 23 is Paul leaving Antioch and ministering in Galatia. And then verse 24, we move a few hundred miles to the west and we go to Ephesus and the church in Ephesus, which is being led at that time by Paul's right-hand couple, Priscilla and Aquila. And as we arrive at Ephesus, we get introduced to a new character in our story, a guy by the name of Apollos. Apollos is North African. He is from the country of Egypt and from the capital city in Egypt, Alexandria. And Alexandria was a center for learning and scholarship in antiquity. And Apollos has clearly received some of the benefit of growing up in that city because the text tells us that he is an eloquent man. He is learned. He is educated. And not only is he eloquent, it also tells us that he's mighty in the scriptures, instructed in the way of the Lord, fervent in spirit, and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. So this Apollos guy, he is bold, he is gifted, he is intelligent, he is passionate, he is a preaching preacher. But he's got a problem. And that's in verse 25. Verse 25 says, He was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. So somehow, Apollos is aware of Jesus and aware of the teachings of Jesus, and at the same time, he is unaware of the baptism of Jesus and Christian baptism. He knows the baptism of John. He does not know the baptism of the Christian baptism. So his information is not incorrect. It's just incomplete. And so there he is, and he's preaching in the synagogue in Ephesus, and he's letting people have it, and Priscilla and Aquila are there, and they're listening to this. And they recognize his acumen. They see his giftedness. They hear his passion. His intellect is bursting through. But what else is coming through is that his theology is incomplete. And so notice what they do. Notice what they do. They don't lambast him in front of everyone. They don't embarrass him or belittle him. Rather, they reach out to him. They take him aside and they gently correct him. It says they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Isn't that beautiful? They didn't just crush his spirit. 
but rather they gently corrected and redirected him. And this got me thinking this week of how do we correct and critique those around us? Do we do it like a surgeon with a scalpel, methodically cutting only the tissue that needs to be cut? Or are we like the guy in the jungle with a machete, just slashing everything in front of him, not worried about what gets hit or what he leaves in his wake? How you correct is just as important as what you correct. How you correct is just as important as what you correct. There are consequences for both. My, um, my best friend is a guy by the name of Kevin Bloomstrom. And Kevin comes to church here at Wayside with his wife, Margaret, and their three kids. And Kevin and I go way back. And I remember when they got engaged and he asked me to be the best man. And this was my first time to be the best man at a wedding. And, and thus my first time to give the best man speech at the wedding. And I wanted to bring my A game. I wanted to hit a grand slam. So I did my homework. And I thought through, you know, kind of comedic anecdotes. And I thought through poignant scenes between Kevin and I. And I I searched out where my powerful pauses would be. I mean, you name it, I had it. I was ready to roll. And so the wedding day comes, they get married, whatever. But then we come to the reception. (laughs) Right? Now it's go time. Now the important stuff is happening. Like the best man speech. So I'm up on the stage, and I'm giving the talk, and I feel like, hey, this is going really well. People are receiving it. You know, I'm feeling pretty good about what's transpiring. And then I get done, and I get off the stage, and boom, here comes a lady right up to me. Mutual friends of Kevin and mine. And this is what she says to me. She says, Michael, you're a decent communicator, but you'd be better off using half as many words. And she gave me a pat on the shoulder and walked off. And I was like, are you kidding? For real? You know? I mean, I was, honestly, I was hurt by her comment. Because I'd worked hard on this. And I'd really put my heart and soul into this talk. And it, and it kind of affected me the rest of the night. But the, the funny thing is the reality is that she was probably Right? I don't know why y'all are laughing. Um, every once in a while, I can get a little long-winded. But I mean, geez, lady, I just got done. I mean, I just walked off the stage. Give me a minute, right? Use a scalpel, not a sledgehammer. I love the words of Russell Moore, Dr. Moore, who says, you know, we need to use, we need to speak the words of Jesus, but also use his accent. We want to speak the words of Jesus but also use his accent. How you correct is just as important as what you correct. And look, I'm not saying don't be firm. I'm not saying be weak. What I am saying is don't be reckless. Don't be reckless. Correction is a means of edification. Correction should be employed as a means to develop, not a tactic to destroy. It's a means to develop, not a tactic to destroy. So use it wisely or you will lose that person. You will abuse them and you will lose them. By the way, notice what else is implied in this text. What else is implied is that Apollos received their teaching. He received it. He didn't say, hey, leave me alone. What's your name, Aquila? What kind of name is Aquila, dude? He he didn't say that. 
He didn't say, hey, I'm the most podcasted preacher in Ephesus. I don't have to listen to y'all. That's not what he said. He received their teaching. He was teachable. He was humble. He was open to what they had to say. And this reminds us of an important truth, which is that humility is necessary for teachability. And teachability is necessary for growth. And all of us have room to grow. All of us have room to grow. Apollos not only had a gift of preaching and a heart of passion, but he had a spirit of humility. And God blessed him for it. And so after Apollos gets coached up in Ephesus, the church there says, we got to send you somewhere. So they sent him to Achaia, which is Corinth. And Apollos goes to Corinth, and friends, he just starts dropping gospel bombs all over the place. And people are responding like crazy. And if you read the book of 1 Corinthians, you'll see that Apollos has one of the biggest and greatest teaching ministries in the entire first century. God blesses his ministry so much that it actually causes division in the Corinthian church. Because some people are saying, "I'm I'm on team Apollos. And others are saying, well, I'm on team Paul. And others say, well, I'm on team Peter. And Paul writes to the church and he says, has Christ been divided? Are you kidding me? So God, just in that picture right there, we see the blessing of God and we see the sin of man. As even Apollos' ministry and the way God blessed it became a cause for division in the church in Corinth. A magnificent, magnificent guy. And so while Apollos heads to Corinth to preach the gospel, Paul now leaves Galatia and comes to Ephesus to do the same. And when he arrives, he comes face to face with 12 disciples, most likely of John the Baptist, who are in desperate need of some guidance. And we see this in the first seven verses of chapter 19. It says, It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there's a Holy Spirit. And he said, well, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him. That is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking with tongues and prophesying, and there were in all about 12 men. So Paul arrives in Ephesus. He meets these these disciples, who most likely are disciples of, of John the Baptist, and he starts talking with them. And kind of like you do sometimes when you're speaking with somebody, you don't know if they get it. You don't know if they get the gospel or they really believe. So he's asking probing questions. And throughout the course of that conversation, he comes to a conclusion. These guys don't know the Lord. These guys are not saved. These guys have not received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so he presents the gospel to them. They receive it. He baptizes them in the name of Jesus Christ. He lays his hands upon them. And then like it has in other times in the book of Acts, like God does, he authenticates their salvific experience as the Holy Spirit comes down. And there's the signs and wonders of tongues and prophecy. And sometimes when we read through the book of Acts and we come to stories like this and experiences like this, we can become a a little bit confused as to whether or not we're supposed to have experienced something like this. Or the fact that maybe you haven't experienced something like this, and that can cause people to go, am I even saved? Do I even have the Holy Spirit? And so because of that, 
I want to just talk about this real briefly for a second. As has been mentioned numerous times during our study on the book of Acts, Acts is a period of great transition. A period where people are moving from the Mosaic law to the gospel of grace. From a Jewish-centric religion in Israel to a global evangelistic religion based on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, many of the things that happen in the book of Acts are events that I would describe, and this is somewhat, there's disagreement within Christian circles on this, and that's fine. But I would understand Acts to be somewhat non-normative, non-normative. It is a unique time in redemptive history where God is establishing his church. He's doing a new thing. And he's authenticating that through the writing and through the ministry of the apostles. And he's authenticating the reality of this massive transition through the appearance of signs and wonders. And here's my point. If you are sitting here this morning and you are questioning your salvation, you're saying, Michael, I've never spoken in tongues. Michael, I've never had an experience like Acts chapter 19. Hey, Michael, I've never had an apostle lay his hands on me. Well, guess what? Neither have I. They're all dead. Right? We're not a first century church. We're a 21st century church. We're not led by apostles. We're led by pastors. We don't function without a New Testament. We have a New Testament. It's not the same thing. It does not mean that you are not saved. And it does not mean that you have not received the Holy Spirit. The scriptures are clear that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And as we read in Ephesians 1, when we come to that place of faith and what theologians call regeneration, God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, seals us, as Ephesians 1 says, for all eternity. Boom. And not only does He seal you, the Word says that we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit personally. And that the Holy Spirit's ministry currently is conforming us to the image of Christ, which began at our moment of belief, has run throughout our entire life, and will culminate and be completed at the time of death when we enter into glory. God is on the move all the time, everywhere. No doubt about it. But that does not mean He has to move or will move the same way all the time, everywhere. He is God, and that is up to Him. That's his prerogative. The second thing I want to quickly discuss that is connected to this passage is the nature, let's talk about the nature of biblical faith. The nature of faith. And I think this is a helpful discussion for a couple of reasons. One, it helps us understand our faith better. And two, it helps us minister to others, I think, in a more practical way. When in Acts chapter 16, verse 30, 31, where the jailer says to Paul, What must I do to be saved? And Paul responds by saying, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what does that mean? What exactly does that mean? What is the nature of biblical faith? What are the ingredients that make this faith? And I would submit to you that there are three. This is how historical theology has kind of understood this. The first ingredient necessary for biblical faith is knowledge or content. It's content. You cannot place your faith in nothing. There has to be some content. And sincere belief doesn't save, no matter how sincere, if the content is incorrect. I can believe with all my heart that Kevin Durant signed with the San Antonio Spurs last week. <laughs> Unfortunately, I live in reality. 
And he signed with a team in a far dark place, law far, far away in California that will remain unnamed. Content matters. The content of the gospel matters. And the content of the gospel is that there's a holy God and we are sinful mankind. And so there is a separation. And so God did what only God could do. And the eternal second member of the Trinity, God the Son, took on flesh. We call that the incarnation. Fully God, fully man. He lived a perfect life on this earth. He willingly went to the cross to die in my place for my benefit, for the forgiveness of sins. And he offers this as a gift by grace through faith to anyone who will believe in him and place their trust in him him alone for their salvation. Content matters when it comes to the gospel. And part one, the first ingredient of biblical faith is content. The second ingredient of biblical faith is mental assent, also known as agreement. Agreement. It's not enough to know the content. One must be persuaded of the truthfulness of that content. There are plenty of people in our world who understand that Christianity teaches that Jesus Christ died for sin and rose from the dead. Many people can articulate that to you. But you must actually agree with it. You must agree with that information. And that is mental assent. And that's the second ingredient. So we have content, we have mental assent, and then thirdly and lastly, we have personal commitment. Personal commitment. This is where we not only agree with the content, but we put our active trust in it. In our case, we place our life in the hands of Jesus and he alone for the forgiveness of our sins and for salvation. There's a pastor in New York whom I deeply admire named Tim Keller, and he has a great analogy of this. Keller speaks of the time where he developed a growth. And so he went to his doctor, and the doctor did a biopsy. They did an MRI, and he comes back to Keller, and he says, Pastor Tim, I got bad news. You have a tumor. It's cancerous, and it needs to be operated on. And that is content. Now Keller is aware of the condition, right? But then we move to mental ascent. And Keller says, I came to a place where I agreed with the doctor's assessment. I looked at the, I looked at the charts. He's got the skins on the wall. He's, got, he's an MD. He's seen this before. And so because of what I've seen and because of where that information is coming from, I trust that. I agree. I have a tumor and I need surgery. But now the day comes for Keller to actually show up for the surgery. And he walks in, he sees the surgical table, and he sees the tools that are going to be used as part of the procedure. And you see, now it's no longer a matter of knowledge. It's no longer a matter of agreement. It's a matter of commitment. He knows for the surgery to happen, he's got to actually get on the table. He's got to get on the table. It's no longer just mental. It's also volitional. It's not just mind. It's mind and body. It's the whole person. And this is the personal commitment aspect. And thinking about our faith this way can be really helpful, not only for us individually, but as we minister to others. Because one of the things we should all be doing as we engage people in these areas is asking the question, what is it that they are struggling with? Where is it that they are lacking? And so if I'm talking to somebody 
and it's clear that they don't have a grasp of the content of the gospel, then I'm not going to spend all my time telling them, this is how you got to live. This is, this is how you live out your faith. I've got to focus in on the, the gospel and clarity of the gospel. Secondly, if somebody understands the content, but they don't understand, they, they don't have the mental ascent aspect, then that conversation oftentimes takes more of an apologetic ter- turn. Because now they don't need the gospel repeated. Now we're engaging on why the gospel makes sense. Why the gospel answers the major questions of life, of origin and purpose and meaning and destiny. And we walk through that. Thirdly, if somebody knows the content and they agree with it, but they're not walking in faith, I'm not going to keep sharing the gospel with them. They've heard it. They get it. They're just not walking in it. So now we're going to engage them in those areas where they're struggling in their faith and ask the question, why? And oftentimes it is a lack of belief, and these are connected, but you see how this can be helpful for when you engage people in ministry and with um, the nature of biblical faith. So content, mental assent, and personal commitment. These are the three ingredients in biblical faith. And, this, and they also bring us to our final scene this morning, which is the story of Sceva and his seven sons. So after Paul has been teaching in the synagogue and at the school of Tyrannus in verses 8 through 10, Luke now shares with us a fascinating story about a pseudo-priest, an exorcism gone very bad, and a spiritual revival that resulted from it. So this is found in verses 11 through 20 of chapter 19. It says, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick. And the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. I mean, this is incredible stuff. Handkerchiefs and aprons. But also some of the Jewish exorcists exorcists, who went from place to place attempted to name over those who who had the evil spirits. The name of the Lord Jesus saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? So basically, one thing you need to know is Ephesus was the center of the Roman Empire for sorcery. Massive amounts of sorcery in Ephesus. And so we get introduced to this guy who is a pseudo-Jewish priest named Sceva and his seven sons who are going around and they're doing quote-unquote ministry and they're casting out demons, they're doing exorcisms, and they come to this one guy who's, who's demonically possessed and they cast him out and they say, in the name of Jesus and in the name of Paul. And the demon responds and says, hey, time out, brother. I know who Jesus is and I know who Paul is, but who are you? You're not in my Rolodex. I have no idea who you are. And this is not going to go well for Sceva. Look at verse 16. It says, And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Not a good look. Not a good look at all. It says, This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. An immense amount of money. Millions of dollars in today's day and age. And then verse 20. 
So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. This is really a powerful scene. It's a powerful scene. All these former sorcerers throwing their books into the fire, their paycheck, throwing their bread, winning. This, is what, this was their living. And they throw it into the fire because the fire was burning within to follow after Jesus. And it's a beautiful act of mass repentance. It's just a beautiful act of mass repentance by an unlikely group of converts. And it's a beautiful picture of how God can redeem even his most wayward sons and daughters. And he can take their sin and he can take their old way of life and he can throw it in the fire and burn it up and get rid of it as far as the east is from the west. And it's also a beautiful picture of how God can take someone's life and what they thought was their purpose and he can completely transform that and he can throw that in the fire and repurpose them to live a life that brings glory and honor to him. It's just a special event in Ephesus. And one of the highlights of Paul's ministry in his entire life. You know, earlier I said that, the, that God established the church in the book of Acts and authenticated it through signs and wonders. And that they were unique to the time period of the apostles. But that doesn't mean that God is silent and that he no longer moves. And that doesn't mean that God is somehow now out of the business of miracles. The truth is that every salvation by our triune God is a miracle. Every single one. And I was reminded of that this week. I had a gentleman from our church, a good brother, who kind of came in. All of a sudden I got a call and said, hey, there's somebody who wants to meet with you. And so he comes over to my office and we sit down. And he says, hey, I was there at church last Sunday. I heard your sermon. God stirred in my heart to come share something. I wanted to share a word of encouragement with you. And so he starts sharing with me about his life. And he takes me all the way back to when he and his girlfriend at the time got pregnant out of wedlock. And this gentleman looked at his girlfriend and three times asked her, we need to have an abortion. We need to have an abortion. And each time the girlfriend said, no, I'm supposed to have this baby. And you can stay or you can go, but I'm having this baby. And her strength really impacted him. So he, he stayed in the relationship. And they go on. They have their daughter. And they go on. They get married. And then years later, his wife comes into contact with a woman from Wayside who ministers to her and cares for her and invites them to church here at Wayside. And so they come to church at Wayside. And they are not impressed. Can you believe it? I mean, just shocking. <laughs> they think we're weird. Right? It's a good reminder of how people feel oftentimes if they've never been in church or grown up in church. So they come in here and they're just like, this is not for us. This is not for us. And they decide we're not coming back. And they leave the service and they go to pick up their now preschool daughter from the preschool classroom over there. And their daughter comes out with a huge smile on her face and says, I loved it. Can we come back tomorrow? (laughs) And they can't believe it. The preschool teachers had so ministered to their daughter and impacted their daughter that her joy had then impacted both he and his wife. So they said, yeah, we'll we'll come back. And so they came back week after week and they heard the word preached. They heard the gospel proclaimed. Probably a few Romans road in there, right? And they heard the gospel proclaimed. And finally, one night at work, by himself, it clicked. And he had the content of the gospel 
He had the mental ascent like, yes, that is true. And then he put his personal faith, he, he put his act of trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of his sins. And then he told me of how years later, that daughter did the exact same thing. And that daughter wanted to be baptized. And he got to stand in that baptismal with his daughter as she professed her faith in Jesus Christ. And he got to look at her and know what could have been. And yet by, what, by God's grace, what did become, what did happen. The daughter he was not sure that he wanted became the vehicle that God used to bring him to a saving faith and bless him beyond his wildest dreams. Now that may not be a handkerchief that heals or an apron that performs exorcisms, but that is a miracle. That is life where there was nothing but death. That is hope where there was only despair. That is grace where there was only shame. That is forgiveness where there was only judgment. That is the gospel of grace. That is the hope of the cross. And that is the most powerful truth and the most powerful miracle that there has ever been. The gospel is really the only thing that can bring peace vertically between us and our perfect creator. And the gospel is the only thing that can bring peace horizontally between us and our imperfect neighbor. And so may the Lord do what only he can do. And may he spark a revival in our midst. And we would throw away the sin and throw away the attitudes that keep us from following him. Would we throw those in the fire that he may burn those away? And would we repent and turn to him and experience the grace and mercy he so desperately desires to give? Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you and we just praise you for you are worthy of our praise. I love the words of, of Paul when he was in Athens in Acts chapter 17 and he's, he's preaching there on Mars Hill and he tells those Athenians that God needs nothing from human hands. You think that you're the center of the universe, but God needs none of this. And yet he chose to create you. He chose to create out of grace and out of love. And then even when the people he created turned their back and rebelled against him, saying, we don't want anything to do with you, God. God did not leave us in that state. And so he took on flesh, left heaven and came to earth. God the Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and, and walked among us. And he lived a perfect life. And he said, I love you. And I I came to die for you. And I know that's hard to believe. And I know you feel worthless. But I have given you value. And by my wounds you are healed. Turn to me. Turn from your sin. Turn to me. And I will give you life abundant and life eternal. And so God, we pray for our country. We pray for those in our spheres who do not know you. God, we pray that they would turn from their life of sin, that they would turn from the state that they reside in. They would take their books, they would throw them in the fire, and they would turn to you and receive your mercy and receive your grace. Lord God, thank you for bringing us here together. Thank you for the church, the church, the body of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.
Would you please stand and sing this last song with us?